Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your presence in our midst when we worship you. And we're grateful for your, your presence in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit as we interact with other people equally and fully filled with your Holy Spirit. Help us as we pray in our liturgy uh, to see Christ in them and to therefore hear those very words, I love you, from you through uh, the embodied reality of other people. We pray that your Holy Spirit would bless us right now as we walk through the final section of the communion liturgy. Uh, Open our eyes. May the result of today be that we are stirred with greater affection to love you and love our neighbor. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is week four. Last week before I abandon you in the dean's class and someone else comes to teach you yet again, thank you for the privilege of letting me journey with this time. I imagine it won't be the last time that we run this. This will probably be an annual thing that we do because um, it's been very helpful. I can't tell you all the feedback that I've heard uh, from folks who said, which is the end game that it's really blessed their experience of worship at Advent. That's what we want. That we want life to be injected into what we do so that you walk away not saying what a great choir, what a great preacher, what a great liturgy, but what a great Savior. Right? That's the goal of why we do what we do. And it is because of the championing of that reality, what a great Savior, that we dive into the communion liturgy. But before we do, I want to... Rehearse for us two things. Our goals for this have been to help us better connect head and heart. And thankfully, I've I've noticed that that's been happening with us. And the second goal is to tune our ears to hear the gospel. And the gospel is that word about Jesus Christ came to do for you, which you could never do for yourself. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. That's the gospel. In a nutshell, the gospel is good news. And it's the good news for sinners that Jesus paid it all for you. It is finished. If you're ever wondering what the gospel is, as you're in the nave, look up on the right-hand side of the stained glass that's in the front on the northern wall. And above the crucifixion, there is an angel holding a banner. And that banner has three words on it. It is finished. What is finished? God's judgment of you. The final judgment that we are all headed towards has been meted out in a previous event with present effects. God bent time and said that what happens here at the cross is for you, your final judgment. And Jesus was judged for you. Therefore, that's finished. It's dealt with. It's secure. That's the gospel. And that's what we're trying to hear with our ears as we come into worship every week. The theology. Remember that the central question being asked in the Reformation, is how are people changed? How do people actually become different kinds of people? And the answer that the Reformers came to after reading the Scriptures and rediscovering what the early church had unleashed from the power of Scriptures, it's by a work of God in the heart. People are changed not by their outward actions to God, but by God's work in and on them through Jesus Christ. And how does God do this work? Particularly through His Word, particularly through the gospel. This gospel needs to be announced to sinners every week, Christian or non-Christian kinds of sinners. Why? Because you and I sin every week. If we were suddenly sinless, we would maybe cease to need to hear the gospel. 
But I don't see that happening for any of us this side of paradise, right? So we need God to perpetually do this work of preaching the gospel to us through his word. The driving force behind the Reformation and therefore the driving force behind a Reformation understanding of worship can be summarized in this statement. The word of God births what? Faith. The word of God births faith. This is a summary. The word of God, particularly coming in the gospel, this is what produces faith and good works out of me. Right? I don't somehow merit something that changes me. God changes me, and out from me come the fruit of the Spirit, these good works. That's the idea. The Word of God births faith, living itself out in love. And it's neatly sort of in this diagram that we've been using again and again that we're going to return to today. The Word of God comes down first, and then as a result, it births, it, t- it makes dry bones live. It preaches a word that ties these dead bones in a desert where there is no water and breathes living water into them and ties them back together such that the dead bones stand forth and go, there's my Lord. I couldn't see him while I was dead, but now I see him and what can I do but follow him? Right? That's the idea. That's the picture of it all. The heart of the prayer book, therefore, is unleashing the the goal of our worship in both the Holy Communion liturgy and the morning prayer liturgy is to unleash the Word of God, to convert the heart, your heart, the unconverted regions of your heart through the power of the gospel. That's the goal there. Remember that morning prayer. Go back to lesson two if this doesn't sound familiar, but morning prayer was a journey from earth to God's heart and back to earth again on mission. That was the idea. And then we finally picked it up last week, looking at all these elements of Holy Communion, seeing that the Holy Communion service is split into two parts. There are kind of two sections to the historic Holy Communion service of the ancient church, and there are two sections to, therefore, our liturgy in the prayer book. The first section is called, we call, it's traditionally called the Liturgy of the Word, right? It's all the way up. If you're trying to figure out where's this hinge in our worship service, it's all the hinge between the first half and the second half in both morning prayer and Holy Communion is the place where Andrew stands up and says, God's peace to you all. W-E-R-C, blah, 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 blah. When he says all that stuff, that's what he's referring. That's the hinge between the first and second half of the service, the liturgy of the Word. So the Word is coming at us through Scripture and preaching in particular. But then when the second half hits, it's often called the liturgy of the upper room. The upper room being the place where Jesus first instituted the Last Supper, right? So we have these two parts, and that's how we can organize. Today we're going to be looking at the liturgy of the upper room, but before we do, I want to once again give us some theological moorings to help us understand this handout that we're going to walk through. But first, remember, it is the Word of God that births faith in us, all right? And I want to tease this out a little bit to help us to wrap our minds around the decisions made by the Reformers about the communion liturgy that they received from the medieval church, okay? First, they believe that the word of God is an act of grace, a giving of grace to the people. Because when God declares it is finished, that's a gracious word to sinners who deserve it's not finished. You've got hell to pay. That's really what we deserve, all right? But instead, God declares to us in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the word of God coming to us is that first word, and it has to be the word of ultimately grace, right? God's word about Jesus. Our faithful response 
faith is in liturgical form, if the word of God is coming first and faith comes second, faith in liturgical form when we gather together comes in the form of prayers and offerings in response. It is very important that this order be maintained. Why? Because this ordering, uh, why is it important? It's because this is what a gospel-shaped structure looks like. Right? Gospel means that God's first word breaking into... We were, we were not just floundering in our trespasses and sins. We were not just breathing our last breath. We were corpses, all right? Salvation is not, you're drowning in the sea and you're flailing about and left to yourself, you're going to die. Salvation is you are dead, bloated at the bottom of the ocean. And apart from a resurrecting scuba diver named the Holy Spirit, pulling you out and throwing you on that boat and breathing life and air into your lungs, you will never come alive. It needs to be God's work first. If it's not God's work first, dead people can't make themselves live. Okay? That's the, the kind of number one idea. And so the idea that grace precedes any response or any faith is part of what it means to structure a worship in a gospel-shaped way. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, looking back at this, the Reformers were concerned when they saw the medieval liturgy because the medieval liturgy did a lot of this. Faith first. Faith offering itself to God first. And then grace would come down, right? The idea was that we offer ourselves in prayers and offerings to God. We say, I give myself to you. I consecrate myself. I sort of wash myself and make myself clean. And then God, as a result of the sincerity of my heart and as a result of how earnest I show myself to be, gives me His grace. That's the economy of medieval worship in large part. So the reformers said, right? This is a merit-based structure. Do you see the contrast, at least in theory? This is theoretical now because we haven't sort of dived into structures and actual elements of worship. There, this is the contrast, okay? Gospel-shaped worship says grace, then faith. <laughs> Merit-based worship says faith, then grace, okay? Worship based on the gospel, because the gospel is at the heart of any true power in worship. If, there, if we were going to experience any life-changing power, the Reformers were concerned to promote two things that, as they formulated the prayer book. Remember these two governing things because they will help you understand the communion liturgy. The first thing is, it was a gospel-based structure over and against a merit-based structure. That's what we just talked about. The reformers, as they looked at the gospel in the scriptures, they said, this structure needs to be maintained or else we lose a sense and we start shaping our people around this idea that they earn God's favor. All right? That's, the, that's the, the, the scary part about liturgy, is that liturgy shapes you. Even its structure shapes you. Even if you don't know what you're doing, it's making you into a certain kind of Christian. And the Reformers were very concerned that in the 15th and 16th century, Christianity was filled with people who were scared out of their minds because they thought that God's love for them was contingent upon their behavior toward Him. Okay? So... 
The first part is a gospel-based structure over against a merit-based structure. Really important to all reformational revision of liturgy. Second thing is avoidance, and I haven't talked about this much yet, avoidance of worship words, practices, and rituals which distracted from the clarity of the gospel's voice. They were concerned with words, rituals, and practices which took people's eye off of the gospel ball and put their eye on other things. Okay, Very important for the Reformation. They were analyzing all the ways in which Christians were sort of dazzled by so many other things other than Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, risen for sinners. And they became very sensitive to all the ways that worship was sending all kinds of different messages. And that in the midst of those different messages, you couldn't hear the gospel clearly. Imagine if I had five people up here and one person was saying, Jesus Christ died for you. But then I had the four other people also saying other truths about God or maybe other lies, but nevertheless talking. How well would you be able to hear that word? Not at all. The reformers were about clearing those other words out. And those words came in the form of words. They came in the form of practices and rituals, all of which distracted from the ability to hear the gospel's voice. Hang on to these two ideas because we will return to them as we look together. I have given you this handout here. I want you to turn to the back of the handout where we have the prayers because, you know, they have the, the titles of these prayers. Um, this, these are the prayers of the communion liturgy in the structure of uh, our 1979 prayer book. So first column, second column, third column. And so that you can see the shorthand, each of these prayers kind of has a, has a name. Uh, the sorsum corda, which means in Latin... Um, lift up your hearts, right? That's this section of prayer where we pray, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, lift up your hearts, we lift them. That section of the communion liturgy is often summarized as the sorsum corda. Next is the sanctus and benedictus. Sanctus being holy in Latin, benedictus being blessed in Latin. All right, that's where we get, so there's two sections, the sanctus and the benedictus. The opening prayer, and now I want to camp on this for a little bit and look at it and see the way this, this prayer was fashioned according to an understanding. <laughs> Cranmer took this uh, Latin prayer, translated it into English, but also clarified. And I, I would call it like verbal punches. It was like an assault of, of a, a one-two-three kind of combo. Listen to him talk about the finished final work of Jesus, okay? And the reason it's important to highlight the finished, final work of Jesus is that Christians were confused about whether or not that work was final, right? If I still have to do something to contribute to get God's pleasure, it's not final until I do something to add my coins to the merit coffer, okay? Additionally, particularly at the table, there was confusion about whether or not this was in fact either a re-sacrificing of Jesus to placate God for our sins or whether it was a re-offering of the, the sacrifice to Jesus. But either way, either of those ideas would confuse Christians that there was still something left that needed to be done to atone for my sin. That's the mentality going into this. Now listen to this with the, the punch combo. All glory be to thee, almighty God, our heavenly Father, for that thou of thy tender mercy, mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. And watch out, here it comes. Who made there 
there on the cross, not here at the table, there on the cross, by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction. Now, why in the world would Cranmer want synonym upon synonym upon synonym? Because you and I are always prone to want to add something in order to get God's grace. And so he's just sort of putting that, that driving that death knell into us, that gong of Christ's finished work over and over again. One oblation, once offered, full, perfect, sufficient, sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction. It's like, come on, guys. This happened once for all. This is a theology of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, in prayer form, okay? For the sins of the whole world, and did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that precious death and sacrifice until his coming again. This is the opening prayer of communion, meant to set the stage, all right? Then what's called the words of institution or the institutions. On the, it's quoting from scripture. On the night he was betrayed from uh, Corinthians, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks. Those words, right? And then we have a set of prayers that become the center of the debate. The prayer is called anamnesis, which means remembrance, and epiclesis. The first prayer is typically called the anamnesis prayer, the second prayer, and so I'll read it for you. Wherefore, O Lord and Heavenly Father, according to the institution of thy dearly beloved Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, we, thy humble servants, do celebrate and make here before thy divine majesty with these thy holy gifts, which we now offer, we offer to thee, okay? The memorial thy Son hath commanded us to make, having in remembrance his blessed passion and precious death, his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, rendering unto thee most hearty thanks for the innumerable benefits procured unto us by the same. It's called the anamnesis prayer because we're remembering the context. The context of this table is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second prayer, the epiclesis. And we most, it's also called the prayer of consecration. Okay? And we most humbly beseech thee, O merciful Father, to hear us and of thy almighty goodness vouchsafe to bless and sanctify with thy word and Holy Spirit these thy gifts and creatures of bread and wine that we receiving them according to thy Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, holy institution in remembrance of his death and passion may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. Okay. At this moment in the liturgy, during the blessing and sanctification of the elements, it was believed by many that when the priest or the minister actually touched the cup and touched the bread, as these things were blessed and sanctified, that they turned from bread and wine to actual body and blood, flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Whether or not we need to solve this theological debate around what's called transubstantiation, what I described to you is the doctrinal view of transubstantiation, okay? The reality is, what was number two on the reformers' agenda about things about worship in order to guard the gospel? What, what were they concerned with? Things that would cause anything from sort of taking your eye off the gospel ball. And this sort of pinnacle moment when elements might be turning into actual Jesus, 
took eyes off of the fact that Jesus was actually present by his spirit to declare to you, I love you, I give myself to you. And all of a sudden, communion becomes a bit of a spectacle, okay? This was the concern of the reformers, that this spectacle took your eyes off the gospel ball, all right? They were very concerned about this moment in the liturgy. So hang on to that idea. We go on to the prayer of what's called oblation or self-oblation. And we earnestly desire thy fatherly goodness mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise. You may recognize this. We just prayed this. We prayed it at a different part in the liturgy, and you'll soon know why. Most humbly beseeching thee to grant that by thy merits and death of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and all thy whole church may obtain remission of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. Focus on this language. And here we present and offer unto thee This is faith, right? This is giving to God us, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee, humbly beseeching thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this holy communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction, and so on and so forth. This is a prayer of offering ourselves to God, okay? Remember the gospel and the way a gospel-based worship structure would work. If we're offering ourselves, if we're sort of praying our offering to God, where should that come if we're trying to preserve the way God gets approached rightly? It should come later, right? If we really are offering ourselves to God, it is not to get grace from the table. It's to respond to the grace given to me in the table, okay? That's this prayer of self-oblation. Then we pray the Lord's Prayer. There is, in 1979, the addition of an ancient part of the liturgy called the breaking of the bread, or the fraction. Then there is um, a a song that can be spoken called the Agnus Dei. The Agnus Dei is a quotation of Scripture, particularly in the moment when Jesus first bodily appears to the world for public ministry. He is heralded by a prophet, John the Baptist, who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, there he is. Part of the reason that the Agnus Dei was put into the liturgy was yet another moment to say, Look at what happened to the bread and the wine. There he is. Behold, the Lamb of God. Now we have slightly different language. O Lamb of God. That kind of helps with some of that distinction. But nevertheless, this was the general sentiment is that just as John the Baptist heralded Jesus coming in where we could see him and touch him physically in his body, here it is now. Okay? That's what was going on. And again, number two in the Reformers' agenda was not wanting, as good as these scriptural words are, as good as experiencing the presence of Christ, which they, many of the Reformers and I and your ministers still believe in happens. They didn't want that the elements becoming a spectacle would start to distract from the fact that we're here at the table to receive the good news about Jesus. But nevertheless, this is it. This is part of the liturgy. There's our favorite. I mean, who doesn't love the prayer of humble access? It's awesome. And then there's the reception. The words that, that are spoken to you 
And as I highlighted in my adventurer word, I just want to point, when words of these are spoken to you when you come to the table, I want you to hear more than anything else two words that get repeated four times if we're saying all the words. What are those two words? For you. For thee. Those are very important gospel words because it's one thing to say, Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. But it's another thing to hear, Jesus came to die for thee. You know, one of the things that uh, I want to continue to work on with our, our ministers and chalice bearers as we give you the bread and the cup is to look you in the eye and with all conviction, power, and happiness and welcome of the table, say, Jesus Christ, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee. Preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Jesus died for you. Because that's a moment when dry bones live. And we need that, right? And then the beautiful post-communion prayer, which, listen to the language here and think about the original context. Almighty and ever-living God, we most heartily, with our whole heart, thank Thee for that Thou dost feed us in these holy mysteries. How does it work? Presence of Christ, it's there, but I don't quite know how it works. Holy mystery. With the spiritual food, spiritual is a very important word for many of the reformers, of the most precious body and blood of thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And listen to this. At this table dost assure us thereby of not thy judgment, but thy favor and goodness towards us. And that, listen to this now. Think of what was the spectacle of communion. Assure us that as we receive you spiritually by faith, that we are very members in corporate in the mystical body of thy Son, the blessed company of all the faithful, and our heirs also through hope of thy everlasting kingdom. If you had any doubt that you are, are you God's child, the table is there to settle the matter again for your uneasy conscience, to assure you you're in. By the merits of Jesus, you're in. You are assured that you are an heir of the everlasting kingdom. And even more, this language of being members in corporate, in the mystical body and blood. One of the interesting things I like to say as a little bit of a quip, Thomas Cranmer, who constructed this prayer, believed in transubstantiation. But he believed not that the elements were transformed, but that you and I, by the power of the gospel, are transformed into the body of Christ, renewed in that. How's that for power, right? How's that for a spectacle? All of a sudden, we hear the gospel and are transformed and reminded of being members of the body of Christ. Members, not just membership card, members as in limbs of the body of Christ who is our head, according to Paul, right? Powerful, powerful gospel stuff. Turn it over. Here we go. With this in mind, thinking about faith for, or word first, then faith, Cranmer constructed a liturgy in 1552, which in many ways was watertight with this. The sorsum corda, we lift up our hearts. Holy, 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 the word of God is showing us, showing God to be holy and us sinners in the Sanctus. The prayer of humble access follows right after that. Because what are you going to do when God says he's holy but say, Oh my goodness, I don't come and presume upon my own righteousness. I'm not worthy to gather up the crumbs of thy table, but have mercy, right? And then there's the opening prayer. And it's a condensation. So rather than, uh, rather than if, you, if you turn back on the back, 
The, you can see the condensed lines from 1552 in the opening prayer. Hear us, O merciful Father. We beseech thee, grant that we receiving these creatures of bread and wine. Creatures meaning creations. They're of the earth. That's very important, right? According to thy Son, our Savior's Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death, and may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. There's that opening prayer. Right after the opening prayer are the words of institution. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He took the cup and he gave it when he gave thanks. What happens in this liturgy right after the words of institution? There's no prayer to pray to merit God's favor. There's no offering of ourselves up, up to God to get the grace of the table. You simply come and say, my hands are empty, feed me. And he does, right? It's a powerful moment where things are sort of rightly ordered in this Word births faith. The Word comes to us when we receive in a way where I can see Jesus, I love you, where I can taste Jesus, I love you. All that's left to do when the Word is declared to us is to receive the grace there. You don't have to have this string of prayers to say, Jesus, receive me now. I'm purifying myself to make myself worthy. You're unworthy, but Jesus gives you His worth here. And then afterwards... Afterwards, the prayer of oblation and the post-communion prayer are prayed. That prayer, here we offer and present ourselves to thee. So after the grace of God is given to us, we say, as a result of your great work in my life, Jesus, take all of me. I present to you my soul, my body, everything. Take it and use it for your glory. And then we get to pray, thank you for assuring me thereby of your favor and kindness toward me, we being members in corporate, all right? So, this is the structure that was the structure given as English worship developed. Now, in 1662, I've marked in red anytime there's a change, either an addition or subtraction, okay? Because you're going to see the evolution of this over time. 1662, a pretty innocuous and awesome addition of the Lord's Prayer, right? Some of the language was changed a little bit here or there, but nothing of the sort that I think was substantive or would be concerning to a gospel-based structure of worship. In 1789, uh, things were already happening in England, but the reason I fast forward to 1789 was it was when the Episcopal Church was formed and when our American Book of Common Prayer was first ratified. Here is what we have added to it. The opening prayer is expanded from this 1552, again, um, kind of innocuous, but significantly, after the words of institution, but before we receive, a set of prayers, a set of prayers that remember Christ's death, not a bad thing to do, but also reinstitute this moment where the elements are blessed and sanctified. So rather than uh, maybe a gospel-based structure of worship would say, it's way more important for the people to know that they are blessed and sanctified by the merits of Jesus than these elements are. These are added back in as the prayers. And the prayer of oblation, again, before we receive from the table, now again we're praying, and here we offer ourselves up unto you. Okay? This is what's added in 1789. In 1928, uh, the prayer of humble access is moved down and the Lord's Prayer is moved up into the middle of those places. Both awesome prayers 
But when we're thinking about a structure that's trying to sort of say, the word of God gives to me before I give back, it's interesting that we're starting to amass a bunch of prayers that happen between the time the word of God comes and we receive and respond in faith. And all of a sudden, we've got a heap of prayers going on. And even just the experience of that could make a believer feel like I'm sort of giving myself to you and sort of getting things right before I come to the Lord, getting things right before I come to the Lord, right? Before he gives me his grace. So again, this was uh, changed in 1928. And for many of you, this is the Book of Common Prayer that you grew up with, right? In 1979, added to the Sanctus was the Benedictus. Don't have time to explain that. (laughs) Um, After the Lord's Prayer, a fraction uh, anthem or proclamation. If we look on the back, Christ our Passover, not was, which is what the scriptural quote is, but is sacrificed for us. Do you see now with a reformational lens, with a lens of, of the epistles of Paul and the scriptures, that this could be a little difficult to receive because all of a sudden add something else that offers a spectacle. Again, this I'm describing to you what a, a, a gospel grid would find concern with, all right? And then the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, which hadn't been in our liturgy until 1979. Even though it's an ancient prayer and been a part, part of liturgies much, much older than itself, we realize that part of what Cranmer was doing was not solely just giving us uh, an English translation of a medieval liturgy to, to be connected to the old church. He was not only concerned with being connected with the old church, he was very concerned with the gospel, being the filter through which we thought through all of our worship structure and practices. Okay? And now we turn to Advent and the changes we made back in 2016. You can see what we did. We took out the anamnesis and epiclesis prayers, which took us back, not to some new inventive liturgy, but an older form of our very prayer book, an older form that we feel, and not just feel, recognize better and more clearly proclaims the gospel. And I think by now you understand why. I think by now. And the Lord's Prayer, breaking of bread and onus day, you know, we, we take out of that section so that all we have between institution and reception are these wonderful prayers and then we receive. And because the prayer of oblation, we, remo- we took out as well, and I should have a, a line that takes that out. Hmm, I need to change that. Um, we, well, I, actually, we don't take it out because we move it. And you notice that during Lent and um, Advent, we replace the normal post-communion prayer with this prayer so that we have a nice alternation, which is why it kind of trips us up when we enter into Lent. Oh, this isn't the same prayer that I'm used to. Well, it's because we recognize this prayer is an important prayer at this spot. All right? This prayer is an important offering at this spot. The offering shouldn't come before a sermon, you know, kind of idea. When the grace of God comes at me, offering shouldn't come before then. But now that grace has come, here we present ourselves, our souls and bodies to be pleasing to thee. In summary, our commitment to the gospel has us committed to a liturgy that preaches that gospel to us so that 
the, the fruit of it is that you and I can live lives on mission for the glory and grace of God. Any questions? That uh, sin seems to have a residency within me. It's something I can do without really trying. Could you speak to my sin nature, please? I mean, gladly. (laughs) The sins that you can't forget, God cannot remember. In Christ, forever and ever. Amen. How much authority does each church have to adjust the, uh, the way they do these kind of things? I mean, can every church do it the way they want to? Does the have something to do with it? How does that work? Great question for the dean to answer. <laughs> so, if you, if you have a reason in your cousin in Milwaukee, uh, you'll notice that, that things really do vary from church to church, practices. Um, and, and normally it's but normally what you see are churches adding things to the service, not necessarily taking things away or shifting them over. Uh, but in this case, why, Zach's done a very good job of saying why we made the changes. But yet those changes uh, cannot be made without the permission of the bishop. And so we received the permission of the bishop, which uh, he was very grateful for because uh, normally people just do whatever we want, but we felt it was very important to include him uh, in that uh, process. Other questions? Over here. I don't need the microphone. It intimidates me. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for explaining this because one of the first things I noticed was missing from the service was that um, Agnes Day, mm-hmm. I can't pronounce it well. But Agnes. Yes, and I, um, I had missed <laughs> On use. But I mistakenly thought that we took it out, this is awful, but like in the interest of time, because mm. we have such a fast, like our service is pretty fast compared to other Episcopal services. And so I right. just thought, well, you know, we're a machine and we got to keep going. Everybody's got to get to Sunday school. And that's awful, I know. Yeah. But I really appreciate you explaining and putting into context what, yeah. or why, we, why we did that. And, and, you know, so anyway. To summarize what was just said, um, <laughs> she had thought that we took out the unused day because of time. And if I'm being good, I will say that we are a bit of a slave to the clock here at the Advent. And I think it's a real issue for the way that we experience worship. Because if we're feeling rushed, I mean, who wants to feel sort of rushed around in God's presence, right? Um, And that's a real, actually, our worship visioning committee has sort of identified that as as an issue. Um, And so I think it's not without consequence that you're sort of pointing this out. Um, Yes, but well put. No. If, me, if this course that you have presented had been included or part of my confirmation class, the next 60 years of my Episcopalian business would have been much more fruitful, hmm. much more uh, rewarding. Hmm. This was great. Thanks. Thanks. It was okay.
we've got we've got time for a couple more questions, or at least one more. Depending on how long you are, Mary Kay. I'm just wondering the post communion prior. Yeah. It's in my heart. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Are we going back to that? Yes. Pastor? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I think the ideal would be that we pray both. But we're slaves to the clock. <laughs> and we haven't fully meted that out yet. And maybe some of you want to send me a nasty email telling me to not be a slave to a clock. But, oh, Lord have mercy. Yeah. Zach, just, just following through my previous comments, this has been so helpful to everybody. I know, and me, in addition, the same way. You know, I know I don't want to put more burden on you. You've done a wonderful job with this class. Sure would be, since we do things like we have a magazine that we put out around the church and we print that every year, sure would be helpful if you could do this on a pamphlet. Okay, hang on, hang on. All right, all right, it's a great way to end. Uh, so we're, we're in the middle of producing an annotated leaflet uh, where basically in kind of well-written form, You've got a leaflet before you of the morning prayer, a kind of generic form of it, of the morning prayer and Holy Communion liturgies, with a bunch of these little notes explaining the elements in a way. It's going to be made available to newcomers, but we hope to roll it out actually in the next few months. We're in the middle of editing down uh, what I've written for that. And the goal is so that we understand our worship better. So it'll actually look like a really thick version of the leaflets you now see. And you open it up and it looks like our liturgy, but interspersed in our liturgy, hopefully in a well-designed way, will be little explanations that hopefully will help all of us, whether we've been in this thing for 60 years or 60 minutes. And the goal, uh, so that's coming, Lord willing, Gil, what, like in two, three months. months. All right? That's a great way to end, because I meant to tell you about that, and I'm super pumped about it. Uh, so we've been working hard on that and uh, the goal isn't just to sort of again it's not it's not head stuff it's to be moved in our hearts to love and serve Jesus to hear that gospel more clearly and to love our city as a result better grace and peace to you Amen Amen